and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Oh, I've had so much fun with our podcast interviewees over the past couple of weeks. I loved speaking to Nicola Wilson last week and we have some more treats coming up for you, including this week, Georgie Spence. I was thinking after the interview that Georgie is one of those riders that I've really grown up with. I've been horse and hand eventing editor for over 15 years, so I've seen her right through the sport from juniors all the way onwards. And on this week's podcast, we had a great chat about her first badminton back in 2008 and her current top horse, Hulltown Harley. Oh, he is the complete love of my life. He's a cheeky little chap and he's, he's done wonders for me. I've also been talking to my colleagues on the Horse and Hound news desk to discuss the latest updates on Brexit, EHV1 and Britain's path to the Tokyo Olympics. Finally, leading groom Alan Davies will give us some inside info on the superstars he's looked after and tell us why it's important to know your horse's personality. It's a big part of being a groom and taking care of top competition horses to get to know each individual horse and their characteristics. More from Alan later. For now, pull off that tail bandage and let's get going. My guest this week is the five-star event rider Georgie Spence. Georgie is a double young rider team gold medalist and has won twice at four-star level. Hello Georgie, welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, Georgie, we're going to take a trip down memory lane today. I want to chat about your first badminton way back in 2008. Can you start by giving us a bit of context? How old were you and what sort of stage were you at in your career? So I was only 19, um, which at the time I didn't feel young, but I appreciate now was very young. Um, I had actually only been eventing four years. I remember walking the course with um, William Foxpit and actually Rosie Thomas. And Rosie said, oh, have you done many? Because it was obviously four star at the time. Um, she said, have you done many four stars? I said, no, this is my first one. I, it's only, I'm only in my fourth year of eventing. Um, and I think at the time I didn't appreciate how inexperienced and naive I was. Um, whereas looking back, I think it was mad that I was going around at that age. Um, <laughs> but no, just a complete whirlwind experience. Because you had show jumped quite a lot before you moved over to eventing, hadn't you? Yeah, so I show jumped up until I was 15, 15, 16-ish, um, you know, a good level for pony jumping. We sort of jumped some 140s. I think I jumped bigger in ponies when I was 15 than I do on horses now. Um, so in terms of the height of the fences, um, I wasn't scared of them. They were obviously a new challenge because they were out in the countryside and they were skinny and angles and combinations. But in terms of the height, thankfully for me, that there wasn't a worrying worry for that point. Yeah, and you had presumably left school and education and you were eventing full time. Yeah, so we, in in those days, we were allowed to leave school when we were 16. Um, I'd actually been asking my parents from the age of 12 to leave and have home tutoring because that was very much the done thing in show jumping. A lot of my friends were home tutored so that they could jump full time. Um, but I, my parents were not keen and thought that I would have no social life if I didn't have some form of education. So no, I'd left left at 16. We set it up as a business straight away, but was still heavily funded by my parents until I was about 20. And the horse that you took was a horse called Running Brook. Tell us a little about him. How did you start riding him and how long had you had him by the time you went to that badminton? So we bought him in, I think it was 2006. And I think I went to badminton in 2008. 
Um, we just saw him advertised. I think he was in Horse and Hound. Um, saw him advertised. He was with Nick Gauntlet. He was owned by a lady local to us um, called Tessa Clark, who'd bred him. He wasn't the most successful horse. Um, we were, you know, as a family on a bit more of a budget. Um, so we, the horses we bought tended to have a weak area or two weak areas. So he, when we'd bought him, he'd done two advance. Um, I think both with mid 40 tests and four or five fences down. Um, and I think he'd been eliminated in both cross country. So actually he had th three bad disciplines, um, <laughs> but he was affordable. And I think because I was 16 ish, 16, 17 at the time, we thought he'd give me a little bit of experience at intermediate level and, you know, maybe get round and advance on him. So it would be a great, a great prospect for me, really. So I went, went to try him, didn't think he was that amazing because he wasn't that amazing, but he was very, very straight. We jumped a few skinnies in, in the trial and he was very, very straight at everything. And I thought, you know, he'll be a fun horse for a couple of years. Um, but obviously he turned into much more, much more than that for me. Yeah, my sort of memory of him is that he wasn't the flashiest horse and certainly you rode and have ridden horses who are smarter on the flat and, and to look at, but, but he, he was in the end a very good cross-country horse for you. Yeah, I mean, to sort of say it politely, he was a bit of a camel. Um, he was terrible <laughs> on the flat. He was nearly full thoroughbred. Um, he never really went on the bit. He couldn't do a change. He's very rarely did much lateral work. So actually getting through a dressage test was quite a challenge with him, but he had a heart of gold. He would never fight you or be against you. He just genuinely struggled, you know, doing the movements. Um, and then jumping wise really was not talented because country wise, he was a complete machine. I can't really remember a time he had a run out. I think we did at one Burley. Um, where I totally messed up the line at something and he, and he misread the question, but otherwise he was absolutely straight as a die and anything you asked him, he would just say yes. And let's talk a little about the build up to badminton the previous year. What sort of CCI three stars as they were then did you sort of do in, in the build up to that badminton? Well, I mean, this probably isn't the greatest thing for me to say for up and coming riders, but we, we went to Bramham as our first one and I was second purely because nobody got round the cross country. Um, and then I went to Blenheim and I fell off five fences from home because I couldn't hold him. And he tipped up at the log at the top of the hill on the way home from Blenheim. And I remember ringing um, Paul at BE and saying, oh, you know, I'd like to I'd like to do um, Le Moulin the following year because I thought we'll give it a go. And he said, oh, go to badminton. It's free. And it was the first <laughs> year they brought it in free. And we thought, oh, well, you know, it's nothing to lose. We'll go there. So I rang Yogi and said, look, would I be ready? And he said, absolutely not. You know, there's no way you've done one, um, you know, three star um, as they were at the time and you've fallen off at the other one. You're absolutely not ready. And I just thought I'll go, you know, what have I got to lose? It's free. Um, and I was one of only 30 clears that year cross country. And I just think we just slightly went on a wing and a prayer and that kind of naive streak of you just lean back and kick actually sometimes does it does just get you round <laughs> that's a brilliant story i love the fact that paul graham who sort of worked in the international office at uh, b at the time said yeah come on get on with it and yogi breisner you know revered eventing guru said yeah. don't go and you went with what paul said <laughs> yeah it's free let's go it's a much better option <laughs> um so tell us about the badminton week do you remember sort of arriving and settling in where you were stabled what was it like 
I think it's one of those things you build up in your mind. I mean, almost for me, I feel sad that it probably wasn't as special to me as it was for a lot of, um, you know, young event riders because I hadn't grown up in the eventing industry. I'd grown up in jumping. So obviously I knew that Babington was an incredible venue, um, but it was more turning up and seeing it rather than actually the dream of Babington because I had just I hadn't had that dream as a child. My dream as a child was to go to Hickstead because I jumped. So I think when I turned up at Badminton and we'd never really been allowed to go, mum wouldn't let us take days off school to go and watch. And then Saturdays and Sundays, we were always show jumping our ponies. So I never really went to watch. I'd actually gone the year before to do the dressage collecting, like in the, um, the arena for Pony Club. Oh yeah. Which that was my year before I competed. And so I think when I when I turned up, I obviously appreciated Babington was very special, but I think driving in and parking and taking my horse into the main courtyard was, you know, a ridiculously surreal feeling. Um, because I think as a child, when you've grown up dreaming of it, you look, you've looked at all the pictures, whereas I had nothing in my mind. I just turned up and thought, wow, this is, you know, absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, we said earlier that, that Running Brook wasn't really a dressage horse. How did that first phase go for you? Well, actually, he for him, he gave me absolutely everything. I think he scored 57, which in today's day would be about a 37, um, which for a horse that isn't that talented and for a rider that didn't really care much for dressage at the time, um, you know, was a, was a great start. You're absolutely right. He scored a 57.6 in the dressage, so you get points for memory there. Well done. Um, and do you remember sort of your first time walking the cross country? You said earlier that you walked it with, with William Foxpit and, um, and Rosie Thomas, was it? Yes. So I walked, um, I mean, dad's always a great influence for me because he's very, very calming and he's quite matter of fact. He would never sort of think, oh, that's a difficult combination. Let's get stressed about it. He would just walk the course and say, well, that's the combination you have to jump. So deal with it. Um, whereas mum said it was the first year she hadn't walked Babington in about 20 odd years because she always used to go when she dropped us off at school. Um, so she couldn't walk it. She was too nervous. So I think the first few times I walked around, I think I was just so sort of surprised and, and excited to be there. I didn't necessarily worry about any of the challenges. I was just so pleased to be able to compete. Um, and then I think it was my last walk I walked with William because I trained with him a little bit the winter before. Um, I'd just gone down for a few weeks with a couple of horses. So I asked to walk it with him. Um, and I, he's, you know, he's another great person to walk with because he's very calming. He doesn't get stressed. He doesn't get particularly wound up on distances or strides. It's more riding a, a correct line and a correct canter. Um, so actually going, going into it, I wasn't overly nervous. I was just more excited. And how did the day go for you? It was great. Actually, it's a funny story. I remember walking up to the cross country warm up, and I walked up with Paul Tapner. And I remember starting to walk towards and you see all the crowds and the people and you really, the nerves really start to kick in there where you think, wow, this, this is actually massive and everyone is here and this is going to be really embarrassing if I make an error. And he saw me doing breathing exercises as we walked over to the, um, as we walked over to the warm up and he actually said to me, he, he looked at me and he just smiled and he said, everyone says it gets better every year, but it doesn't. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, oh, great. So I'm going to feel like this most years for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> which you always think, oh, once you've been a few times, it must get easier. But to be honest, I don't think it does, because the more you learn, the more it means to you and the better you expect to do. Whereas when you're young, 
you don't have any expectations you just want to complete whereas the older you get the more you think well i should complete because i've been around so many times and i should go well because i've been around so many times yeah that's really that's really interesting and, and you're right however many riders i talk to they always say it never gets any better so uh yeah the, the nerves are always going to be there i think but you had a great ride and, and you came home with just 10 time faults which for a first badminton is, is really impressive yeah, I think the the main benefit of having a thoroughbred is that you just they just go. Uh, that would probably be him going quite slowly because he's he was just always a very very fast horse. Um, you know, he was never sort of massively out of control or massively rude. He was just he stayed in a good rhythm generally, and he would always be quick. Obviously, not being a warm blood, he didn't overjump his fences and waste any time in the air either. <laughs> and that did slightly come out the next day because the show jumping was was not your finest hour. Thirty two penalties. That was that was that gutting, or did you expect it? I think it was it was disappointing in the sense of you know having I think he had eight down, um, but he'd actually had the last five. He jumped a really good round, and then he jumped into there was. Um, a fence on the corner and then a, a combination and then the last fence and he had the fifth to last fence down and then panicked ran into the combination and he just kind of lost his mind because although he wasn't careful he did really didn't want to hit them he just wasn't you know his physical he wasn't bodily able to miss them if you know what i mean <laughs> um so i think although it was naturally very disappointing i was actually amazed just at 19 to have completed I think he finished 30th, so he's in the top 30, his first four-star slash five-star as they are now. Um, overall delighted, but, you know, the natural disappointment at that stage. Yeah, and as you say, you finished 30th. And did it sort of fire you up for more? Were you like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and I want to win now? Yeah, I think it definitely makes you think, right, I've done one and I want every year I go, I want to better that. I want to better my score. I want to better my time. Um, so it definitely does give you give you the hunger. Yeah, for sure. And he went on to be 17th at Burley that year. He completed another badminton. He completed four Burleys in total. So he was a pretty special horse for you, wasn't he? Yeah, a, a, a true gentleman. He gave absolutely everything. And I think if, if you'd seen him when I when I bought him, you'd say you'd be lucky to get around a novice. Um, but he was just one of those horses that just kept giving. Um, and I think we we were lucky. I almost feel like because I was so naive and so young with him, um, it actually it did wonders for both of us because I didn't know what I was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. So we just learned together and we grew together and I trusted him implicitly and, and he did he did to me. I actually still own him now. He's um, He's out on loan to a lady who just hacks. Oh, that's lovely. How old is he now? He was a 96, so he'll yeah, be 25. 25. Yeah, oh bless him. That is lovely that he's still 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 going and has a nice life now. Now, let's talk a little bit about your current top horse, Halltown Harley. He is quite a uh, a fun character, isn't he? Oh, he is the complete love of my life. Um again, not a not a flashy mover, um but he's a cheeky little chap and he's he's done wonders for me. Doesn't he have a good stable name? Isn't he called Blondie? Is that right? I call him Barbie. He's actually, Barbie. he's called Harley. But if you look at him, he's almost Palomino and he has the most perfect tail. So just from very early on when I got him, we nicknamed him Barbie Pony because he's literally, if you were a child, he is the perfect Barbie Pony. Yeah, he's one of those chestnuts that's got like a slightly paler mane and tail, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And in the summer, he looks almost like a Palomino-y golden colour. <laughs> and uh, tell me about the highlights of his career he's given you your first wins at four star that those must have been great moments 
Yeah, I definitely think um, my win in Austria in the three-star, four-star short um, was probably, will be one of the best moments of my life. Just because I hadn't had him long, I'd probably had him under a year, and it was my first Nations Cup, we travelled a long way to get there, um, when we got there the ground was very firm and there was talk of not running, so it's all those emotions that come with it. Um, and then the owner, Suzanne Doggett, it was the second time she'd seen him, she's um, quite busy and she sort of comes to his major competitions and, and she came out there, got lost on the way there, arrived a day late, so all those kind of stresses and emotions and then he did a, a really good test for him, he scored a 50 which I think is about a 32-ish now and then because country-wise he's very very quick, um, sometimes I can't totally hold him but he's very, very quick and very agile and he'll always do, he'll always go the straight route everywhere. So when we came out of cross country, I think he was in the lead by eight penalties. Um, so again, another roller coaster of emotions because I don't think he'd had a pole with me by that point. So you kind of go in thinking, if I'm, if I'm ever gonna win, it's gonna be on this horse because he's put me in a position where he's very unlikely to have two fences down. And even if he does, he'll still win. So yeah, very a very, very, very emotional week. Um, and I think, to be honest, probably yeah, one of the best days of my life and probably will be one of the best days of my life. Yeah, he finished on a 59.6 and the rider who was second was on a 71. So it was a pretty emphatic yeah. win. Yeah, good work. And you took him to the test event in Tokyo in 2019 and, and finished fourth. How did you come to be invited to make that trip as, as part of the British sort of fact-finding exercise? So when um, that I was on World Class that year and I think they invited the members that were on World Class and then they were just going to select two people uh, because I don't think Harley would be a burly type horse. For me, it was it would have been a great experience. So I said I'd be keen. Um, and then I heard back that, you know, they'd like like me to go. And it was quite quite a strange situation because initially you're excited, and then you're nervous, you're flying the horse. You think, wow, this is this is a big thing. And it's into the unknown, you know, the reason it's called a test event is to literally test out the facilities for for the Olympics. Um, but, a, you know, an amazing opportunity, amazing place to go to. Um, and again, I was very delighted that the owner was able to come out and she actually came out with her family. Um, so it felt like going on holiday with your owner and your horse um, and, and having a great week. And as you were, you know, obviously, as you say, it was a test event, you were, you know, the event is put on to help the organisers try everything ahead of the Games. But um, I went to the test event for the 2008 Olympics. And I know from talking to the British personnel who were there, that there's a lot of sort of fact finding for the teams as well. Did you have sort of a, a sort of continuous feedback loop where you were always talking to sort of the team personnel about everything that was happening and how it was going? And how was that side of it? So for about six weeks in the run up to it, we had quite a lot of testing on the horses. Um, there was, you know, various things we did to test how long they lay down for, if they slept, um, their temperature, when we worked the monitoring, how much we walk, trot, canter, those sorts of things. And, you know, that, that, that side of it was really, really interesting and monitoring how much I worked them, what I did with them daily. And I think I learned a lot about my programme and my routine by actually writing it down every day. So it was great, you know, even before we got there. And then when we arrived, we had to take temperature and weight every day. Um, 
I think we were meant to be losing weight whilst we were out there, but I was actually gaining a small amount of weight every day. And then it was analyzing whether, whether that was um, swelling or whether that was sweat or whether that was the water intake because you drank so much more. So a lot of it was really interesting of how our bodies and their bodies were affected by working in those temperatures. Mm, that's fascinating. And what was, you know, we're, we're all still desperate to get to Tokyo and hopefully it will happen this year, a year delayed. What what was it like out there? What were the facilities like? What was the event like? The facilities were, were absolutely second to none. The ventilation and the air conditioning were absolutely incredible out there. You know, the stables, you know, were almost cold at times. So you were still able to rug them and, and keeping everything as normal as possible. Obviously in Britain, it's cold all the time. But actually, we were really lucky in the run up to going. We had a month in Britain where it was really, really hot. So we did quite a bit of our canter work in rugs to, to help, you know, accommodate them to, to, to the temperature. But I think being out there, there was always a good supply of water. Every barn you walked into, there was water bottles for the riders and, you know, for, for people around. And they were monitoring the water tanks for washing the horses off. So they were always at a certain temperature. I'd say the main thing is there wasn't enough shade and enough fans outside, but it was something, you know, they were looking into to add for the um, Olympic event, you know, just more areas in the shade. That was the one thing I noticed on Cross Country Day was that there wasn't enough shade for the riders and all the interviews were done out in the sun. Um, so I actually got heat stroke on the Cross Country Day because we had an hour of interviews outside. So just things like that, that's how they learn. And sadly, you know, as the guinea pig, you need to you need to be the one that suffers those types of things. But I hope then when, you know, fingers crossed the Olympics does run, that there will be more shaded areas so that riders, you know, can perform at their best. Mm. And presumably in the same way that we will have for the Olympics, you made the trip to the cross country venue and the horses all travel to the cross country venue, which is in a different place to the main equestrian centre, isn't it? Yeah, so they travelled the night before. Again, the stables there were amazing. They were actually in sort of a, a marquee type building, but the stables were permanent stables. Uh, again, you know, great, great temperature for the horses. It's no different for them traveling around to any competition. You know, these horses that go abroad are, are so experienced and they travel around a lot. The venue actually at Cross Country, there wasn't a huge amount of warm up there. And again, that was something that they were looking into. They didn't obviously have a huge amount of space. Um, so it was trying to make the best of what they had. But the course had, a, a, you know, plenty of challenges in it and the ground. You started on the flat and then you sort of your first minute was cantering up a hill. Then you sort of went around on the flat and they had a few loops up and down and then sort of a, a run home. So they, they made a lot from the facilities that they had to challenge riders. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know, that cross-country course is actually on an island, isn't it? So when you say the space is limited, there's no way they could possibly add an extra bit of space on because obviously there's only a finite yeah. amount of space to play with. Yeah. Did it have sort of nice, I've seen some of the pictures actually, so I sort of know the answer to this question, but presumably like lovely sort of views from, from that island across the water to the city and backdrop to the, to the space. Yeah, so we there was one loop that they were going to add into the Olympic event that we didn't do. But if you walk to the top of that hill, the views were incredible. Um, you know, in in that sense, although it wasn't a fancy venue, it was still a beautiful venue and it had, you know, its its own charm to it, um, you know, being an island. And I think it was reclaimed land as well, wasn't it? Um, so it was just it was just very different and it's very different to, you know, a British event that we would normally see. And I think that's one of the nice things about the Olympics is you want to go and it and it be different rather than just be the same.
Yeah, I think um, for me, I'm in my mind when I think about it, I kind of think it might be a little like Malmo. I went to that Europeans there in 2013, where um, part of the course ran along the edge of the um, the edge of the water. And in, and in my mind, when I think of the Tokyo cross country, I think it's probably going to be like that. And I'm sure it won't be. But I kind of feel like there might be a similar feel where you're looking over water to a city. Yeah. And I think when you walked it, it, it felt like it was going to be quite a tight, twisty course. But actually, when you rode it, they they designed it quite well. Um in the sense of a lot of the combination fences were tight and twisty, but combination fences often are, and then you'd have a long gallop. So actually it didn't feel as twisty as it walked. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating intel on Tokyo. Thank you, Georgie. One final question. Obviously, I imagine the Barbie pony would have been aimed at badminton this year if it hadn't been cancelled. What's the plan for him now? Well, yes, very, very frustrating for all that we're going to go, um, that we can't go. But as, you know, as 2020 COVID sort of ruining that again, you know, we, we'd hope to look to go to La Moulin. Um, it depends a little bit with being able to travel to Germany with the new restrictions of the EU. And obviously they're not as far along with the vaccination as, as Britain are. So I think there's a, there's a few things around, you know, whether Le Moulin runs, whether we can get abroad. I think at the moment I'm just, you know, looking forward to getting out to the first event and I'm sort of going to make plans as we go, depending on what we're able to do. But it would be very disappointing if we weren't able to get, you know, a four or five star in, you know, this year. Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll look forward to seeing him out and about later in the year. Thank you very much for joining us today, Georgie. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team. So first of all, hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things with you, Eleanor? Yeah, all brilliant. Uh, sun's out. I've been entering shows and booking arena hire. Got all inspired and, and hoovered my car out and uh, even thought about cleaning my tack and then thought that was probably going a step too far. Uh, you are the one who never cleans your tack. You're like the naughty child at Pony Club Camp, Eleanor. <laughs> I'm going to report you to the you know, camp <laughs> <Not> commandant. <laughs> um, we also have with us Lucy Elder, our senior news writer. How about you, Lucy? Hi, Pippa. Yeah, all good here. It's been quite a, quite a busy news week. <laughs> There's been lots of things happening. So I've been trying to get outside and, and see my horse for a break for it um as and when I can so it's nice and sunny today I'll see if I can go for a ride in a bit I think oh that's nice and uh, we also have with us our news writer Becky Murray how are you Becky um well I've basically been put on the equivalent of box rest and butte for a couple of weeks uh, my back has given up on me so I'm feeling rather frustrated but my non-horsey partner has agreed to lunge my horses. So this is either going to be a massive help or really test my patience. So we, we shall see. Are you going to sort of stand and lean on the fence and supervise operations or are you confined to the house? I am going to need to supervise, I think, but I might, I'm going to need to be nice. <laughs> no, he's, he is great, he's helpful, but um, no, I'm feeling so frustrated. You know, we've got the great weather and I'm just itching to actually ride my horse. So trying to be patient. Oh, well, I hope you feel better soon and your back gets uh, back into shape. Eleanor, I'm coming to you first this week to talk about news and you have been following what has been happening at the National Equine Forum. I'm assuming it was a virtual forum? 
Yeah, and uh, it, it's always interesting and it's always a good event and this year was no different. The only slight dif- and, and sad difference being that there wasn't the brilliant National Equine Forum lunch this year, which was very sad. <laughs> oh, that is a shame. But lots of uh, important and serious discussions held anyway, despite the lack of lunch. Um, and one of the big themes of the forum was Brexit and the delegates heard from British Equestrian Trade Association Executive Director Claire Williams. What was she talking about, Eleanor? Well, obviously, the impact on equestrian businesses, as Lucy um, has reported on in in her previous Brexit trilogy, which we've spoken about, the trilogy that became about eight stories. Um, And she was saying, obviously, leaving the single market has had a huge impact, as we've reported, you know, there's, and she was saying that a lot of businesses sort of didn't prepare because they couldn't because they didn't know exactly what they were preparing for. Um, And just with the huge value of the exports from the UK equestrian trade, it's a massive issue you know there's all the paperwork there's tax being levied in all sorts of different places all sorts of different documents and she said you know this is being worked on but it's the progress is a lot slower than had been hoped okay and of course we've talked a lot about movement of horses as well as part of our brexit coverage was there any discussion around that side of things yeah, so Henry Bullen, who's the director of Peed and Bloodstock, was talking about that. And again, it, it was a lot of uh, what Lucy has already reported on about the, uh, you know, he said his two least favourite words at the moment are COVID and Brexit, which he assumes is the same for a lot of people. But he said, you know, it is now a bureaucratic headache. He said it's more complicated now to take a horse from here to the EU than it is from here to the US and more stressful. Um, and again, as Lucy's reported, all the, the vet checks, the extra paperwork, the huge extra cost and um, again he's saying you know we're working with everyone here is working with people across Europe and they are trying to make things better. Okay so so a lot of challenges there and there were some messages finally from Simon Brooks Ward who's the CEO of H Power the group they run at Royal Windsor and Olympia. What was Simon saying? Yeah, so he was saying, so obviously with the international events that we have here, will riders who are based in the EU carry on coming here to compete with all these extra issues? And he's saying, you know, if they don't, and if it's still this difficult, do we have an international event industry? And he said that it's very important that we do have that as a shop window, he called it for our our equestrian industry. And so what he's, he's saying is, you know, we have to work together. Together, we're a force to be reckoned with. He's saying, you know, event organizers, racing, sport hall, horses breeding vets and that the you know everyone has to get together and make this a political issue and get this on the agenda in this country and in the eu to try and get a solution okay so time for the horse world to pull pull together there and uh, aside from brexit what else was covered at the forum um, there was loads else. It, it was lovely to see Claire Williams get the special uh, Sir Colin Spedding Award. They they did a special award this year to someone who had gone above and beyond uh, in such a difficult year. And they, they praised Claire for her tireless work, which we know, you know, how hard she'd been working to support the sector. Um, and then another subject of, of a big debate was diversity and inclusion in the in the equestrian sector. And we've reported on that a lot and what's being done to help in the last year. So it was very interesting to hear from the BEF's Equality Engagement Group Chairman, Sandra Murphy from the BAME Equine and Rural Activities Focus Group, and also um, Rose Gristle, who's Head of Diversity and Inclusion at the British Horse Racing Authority, and Imran Acha, who we've spoken to before from the St. James City Farm Riding School. And, and the sort of consensus being lots is being done, lots still needs to be done. 
Great, really interesting to hear about those different topics being covered at the forum. Thank you, Eleanor, for filling us in. Becky, you have been continuing to follow the EHV1 situation this week. It is a really serious situation that's sort of escalating and changing all the time. We've got some new protocols here in Britain with regard to horses that are coming back from the continent, haven't we? That's right. British Show Jumping has announced a number of isolation and testing protocols, and these are also being followed by the other British British equestrian member bodies. So from 1st of March, all horses returning from these European countries or who have transited through these should be isolated from other horses that may attend competitions or training. And it is strongly recommended they are separated from all other horses. Now, these horses should be kept in a building physically separate from other buildings and they should be attended by separate staff. As well as this, the horses on these premises, including those who have not travelled, must have monitoring and their temperatures taken twice a day. So they are going to be excluded from attending competitions and training. And to remove this exclusion, they must be free of clinical signs for at least 28 days from the last horse returning from Europe, or they must have a series of testing and samples taken, which have to be sent off to a lab for processing. And um, and what's the latest from Valencia, which is where this outbreak was first reported, I think? Very sadly, as of 8th March, 10 horses had died to date. Um, however, there have been some reported improvements in the condition of horses there. The FEI said these are positive signs, but they have stressed the disease is not yet fully under control. I did speak to the British rider Andrew Saters, who's in Valencia at the moment, and he did say things seem to be levelling off. Thankfully, his horses, who had been poorly, do appear to be improving. So that's some good news to come out of there. Okay, and the Spanish Sunshine Tour is another one that's been affected by this, hasn't it? Yes, in the latest update, two horses had been showing the neurological signs of EHV. It had been decided the competition would end early on the 7th of March, but when the second horse started showing signs, the FEI called an immediate halt, and that was on the 5th of March. I hope we'll have some more updates on what's happening there as things develop and as riders start making their way home. Okay, well, thank you, Becky. We'll be keeping abreast of that story, I'm sure, on our website, as well as uh, continuing to follow it in the magazine in the coming weeks. Now, Lucy, you and I talked about the cancellation of badminton last week. I feel like we're on a bit of a looping treadmill here. This week, we're talking about the cancellation of Bramham, which was uh, sad news earlier this week. I think we were all really hopeful for Bramham. You know, it's in June. We're expecting to be almost back to, uh, to, to normal by then, but it just wasn't to be. What did the organisers say? Oh, it was so sad, wasn't it, Pippa? I couldn't believe it when we saw that release come through yesterday afternoon. And I'd spoken to British Eventing's chief executive, Jude Matthews, and I'd also spoken to Bruce Haskell of the Event Horizons Association maybe oh, 10 days ago, and things were looking positive and we had to have a bit of a, a complete rewrite of our news story, if that makes sense, when, when this news came through. So the Bramham organisers have said that essentially they've explored every avenue to keep it in the calendar but health and safety and covid reasons essentially is what's what's caused the cancellation so while government's positive roadmap to exit lockdown and the successful vaccine rollout program and falling case numbers are all looking optimistic i mean the proposed conditions and the time scale are impossible to comply with on the bramham site if that makes sense so 
Brabham's, it's a park, it's not a stadium, it's got footpaths across it, and they can't guarantee numbers if that makes sense so it's oh it's I feel desperately sorry again I feel like I'm like you said we're on repeat I feel desperately sorry for the organizing team and also for for riders for owners for I mean this is this is a huge huge loss to the calendar especially a week after badminton Mm. As you say, they sort of said they couldn't completely control public access and also couldn't guarantee social distancing in in busy areas at the event. So uh, a real blow there. And and just to spell things out, this leaves Britain without a five star, obviously, or a four star long in the spring season at all. There are, of course, events abroad. We have strong four star shorts here still, but it's not a great situation, especially with qualification and selection deadlines for the Olympics in the mix. But uh, there was a bit more news from British eventing on this late on Monday night, wasn't there, which was actually after our, our magazine story had gone to press. Yes, that's right. And as you said, with the Olympics coming up as well, it's it it is a it is a big loss and also a big loss in itself as a target for people who aren't, you know, planning on Tokyo this year or targeting Tokyo. But the news that came out after we'd gone to press from British Eventing was that Bees say they've already commenced process for replacement of um, of actually two other two other fixtures that we heard about cancellation of over the weekend. Um, so classes lost from Withington Manor and Rockingham, and they're starting the process of replacing Bramham's long format four star, uh, their short format four star, and their under twenty five classes um, at an appropriate time in the fixtures calendar. They also said that they're working with performance managers and the Event Riders Association to ensure that they consider all possibilities particularly with the fact that you know we've got Brexit as Ellen has just said and and COVID and EHV there's a lot going on at the moment in the world so there is there is a lot of planning preparation and thinking going on and hopefully hopefully I really hope we're going to have some positive news soon. Well fingers crossed that that they can sort of come up with a replacement there and we'll have some some positive news. Looking at the Tokyo situation Lucy can you just remind us what sort of timescales riders and, and team hierarchies are working to on that? Absolutely. So we know that the British Longlist meeting is due to be held around 11th of May. So what are we now? We're sort of middle of March now. So this is all coming up quite quickly. Then we've got the cutoff date for the combinations have to have achieved minimum eligibility requirements is the 21st of June. So again, that's looking at sort of three months, 12 weeks time. Um, as you said just now, there's three British short four stars that counted as Olympic qualifiers in the calendar before then, plus there's some abroad. And Tokyo itself, again, time is ticking on for that too. So the eventing dates, it starts on the 30th of July. So while I don't know, I mean, time seems to be doing strange things in this pandemic. And I guess normally we'd be already underway with the eventing season this weekend just gone. I've been looking at my sort of time hop photos and Osby and things in the calendar. Everything's shuffled on a bit. So these dates are coming up quite quickly. And so it's going to be interesting to see how and when the, the new plans fit in with that. Well, thank you, Lucy. And we also have a column from Dickie Wager, the British eventing performance manager in this week's magazine as well with more on that. So thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you, Becky and Eleanor for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by NAF. Five Star Superflex Senior from NAF is a unique formulation providing the highest specification of key joint support nutrients for your horse. 
Superflex Senior supports flexibility for life and is one of the constants for Team Hester's horses. So now it's time to hear from Alan Davies, groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin. Hello everyone. In this episode, I'm going to talk about horses' characters. Um, people always love to hear about our horses and their characters and um, how they are behind the scenes and in the stable. Um, and it's actually a quite important part of my job to get to know each individual horse and their characteristics. And so that I know when they're on form, when they're not on form, if maybe they're not feeling great. And I think it's for good for everybody, and especially at the moment, with no shows and um, being forced to stay at home, and maybe maybe you're looking after someone else's horse, or you know, I sometimes have to fly other people's horses. There's only one when we fly abroad um, to the big shows. We're only allowed to have one groom per team per country. Um, so quite often I have to take the whole team, like when we flew to Tryon for the World Games in 2018, I had to take Spencer's and Emile's horses. So I had to speak to the grooms and I had to know their likes and dislikes and when they were on form and when they were off form. Um, it's a big part of being a groom and taking care of top competition horses is, is knowing them inside out. And now is the time I'm getting to know the younger horses that are coming up and looking like they're gonna start competing internationally. I've got to know them, I've got to know um, their, their characteristics and what is good and what is not so good. Um, you know, Blueberry Fallegro was a huge character, but he, he liked to be, he liked his own space every now and again. He liked to go to his stable and have his hay, dunk his hay in his water, make a mess and be a horse. And I used to have to make sure he got that time on his own. He loved the crowds, he loved performing, he loved the attention. But when we were away at a show, I did used to have to make sure he could go and be a horse and be on his own and have his own space and just do his own thing and muck about in his stable. And and now we've got Freestyle, who's a completely different character. She's Charlotte's Grand Prix also at the moment, and she's this feisty lady who's busy and nosy, and she's into everyone else's business, and she'll, she'll put her ears back, but she doesn't mean to be nasty. She's not being nasty. She's just, like, talking and chatting, and if you're not paying enough attention, her ears will go back, and she's like, will you please pay attention to me? And then the minute you give her attention, then the ears go forward, she softens, and she'll put her head in your arms, and she'll have a cuddle, and she's hysterical, and she loves attention. Um, I always make sure I muck out at home the, the top competition horses that I'm taking away at shows because I think you can spend some time with them in the stable when you're mucking out and I'm taking off their stable bandages and you can really watch them and you can get to know their little quirks and their little facial expressions and things and Freestyle's got a million facial expressions she's hysterical she's like she's so funny and she loves to chat to people she loves attention and she loves you being near her and if I'm standing at her door and if I'm not paying attention she'll she'll put her head on my arm and she'll like pull me back towards her to say no actually you haven't finished yet I need some more attention and then Carl's horse and Vogue 
he's completely different. He's quite shy. And when he comes in from the field in the morning, he likes to go in his stable. And he doesn't like any fuss or bother. He's in a stable in the middle of the yard, in the courtyard. So there's not a huge amount of traffic going past. So he likes to go in, he likes to have his breakfast, then he likes a bit of peace and quiet, likes to have a snooze. And he'll, you'll find him, if you go to get him to ride him, you'll find him at the back of the stable. Um, or at the side, not near the door. Whereas if you go to get freestyle, she's she could hear you coming and she's at the door and she'd put her own head collar on if she could. She'd be like, I'll put it on, let's go, let's go and do some work. I mean, she's like up for anything, that one. She's continually on the go, loves to work, wants to work, wants to be in the thick of everything. Um, Pumpkin, Charlotte's little chestnut horse, He's quiet in the stable, likes to do his own thing. But then when he's in the cross ties and he's ready to go, then he likes attention. Um, he will paw and dig in the cross ties if he doesn't think he's getting attention. And he can be sort of like a bit brattish. And if you do give him attention, he still wants more and he'll stamp his feet. He's quite stampy. And it's funny because his dad, Apache, was on the plane to Tryon in 2018 when we flew to the World Games. And he poured and banged with his feet exactly the same as his son does, um, which I was quite shocked about. I noticed it on the flight out there. It was really quite funny. So you, you see all these characters and you need to know your horse and get to know them. And I think every single horse has a, has a different characteristic. Um, it's just fascinating, I think, watching them. And I, I like to watch them in the field too and see how they are in the field because you, you get to know them too. Freestyle likes to be next to something in the field and she doesn't like to be in the field too long because then she thinks she's missing out on something. So she likes to go in the field. She likes to go off. She'll trot away from me and she'll like toss her head then she'll stop and eat. And then um, when she's ready, you see she'll start looking for me. And she's like, I'm ready now. I'm coming in now. And if she's ready to come in and she comes to get, you have to get her in. There's no point leaving her because she just wants to come in because she thinks she's going to miss out on something because she's so nosy. And you, you can really tell, and I just like to watch them from a distance in the field and you can tell their characters. And then you can totally tell when they're on form and when they're not on form, if maybe something's wrong, you know, and if they're feeling poorly and then, you know, if you have to speak to the vet and then they can say, you know, how they're feeling, you can tell them if they're off colour or not and what they're doing and things. So it's a huge part, I think, of, of horse management. And um, I just find it, it fascinating. They're, they're different characters that entertains me enormously watching them and getting to know them and I, I just and I love them for their characters you know I, I love the way Freestyle tries her hardest every time she comes out of the stable um, she's so different to taking care of Allegro but she's a she's a massive character and she's a real trier and I really love her for that so so yeah so hopefully um, you can enjoy your horses and get to know them in this funny old time Thank you, Alan. Next week, Alan will be back to talk about managing your horse's hair. Yes, it's plaiting and pulling. We'll have all the week's news as normal, and our guest will be British dressage list one judge Richard Baldwin, who will talk about young horse classes and how everyone can make a better impression in the arena. I hope you're enjoying the Horse and Ham podcast, currently supported by NAF. 
Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.